Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Rob Petrozo. Rob is the co-founder and chief product officer of Rally, a first-of-its-kind liquid financial marketplace for buying and selling equity shares in ultra-rare assets the same way you buy and sell stocks. From baseball cards and NFTs to cars and comics, Rally is making investing behind ideas, emotions, and communities safe, easy, and accessible. Prior to Rally, Rob held several positions as a designer as well as an art director in the early days of Kanye West's record label, Good Music. Let's dive into his story. All right, Rob, welcome to the show. Uh, you're in the East Coast, right? Where, where are you exactly? I'm in, uh, I'm in New York. I'm downtown in New York City right now. I'm as, I'm as far away from you guys as I possibly can be, but I feel like we're together having this conversation. So thank you for having me, dude. I appreciate it. Did you always live in the East Coast? Is, is that where you're originally from? Yeah, man, I'm from I'm I'm from Brooklyn, and uh, I think when you when you're when you're from Brooklyn in particular, like an Italian from Brooklyn, I don't think you I think it's a law that you can't ever leave, and you gotta like you gotta talk bad about California. It's the only way. Everybody's just like L.A. is the worst. It got to me early, so I got stuck here, man. That was it. And every time I've gone anywhere else, like I'll go to L.A. You know, relatively often, and stay for like you know four days, five days. Any more than that, anywhere, I start getting a little bit itchy. I gotta get back to New York. What, what is it? What is it about it that you like see the difference between that and other places that you love so much? I don't know, man. I think it's like I was reading something. I forget who wrote it. It was like way more poetic than any way I could ever say it. But it's this idea that we're all like prisoners in New York and we like we created the prison that we live in and we love it so much. And like we've made it a world where you can't get in and we can't get out. And it's just like we find ways to rationalize all the like the worst parts of the city. The fact that the you know the weather's bad for extended periods of time and like you know, it's never really comfortable anywhere in this city where you're in a little box in a compartment somewhere and you pay more than everywhere else. But it's also, that's part of it. It's like the idea that everything is happening here is something that gets stuck in your head really early and gets really, really hard to break. And I was just another victim, I think. I don't know. What was that something that you felt like as a kid? I don't know. As a kid, it was di- is a little bit weird. The, the idea of community in New York and in Brooklyn and the neighborhood that I came from is way different. So I was born in like this area that's kind of kind of known as Bay Ridge is on like the edge of Sunset Park in Brooklyn. But it's like a bunch of row homes and everybody knows each other. And like, you know, this is in the 80s and the 90s. Like you go outside, you, there's a thousand people that you recognize and you just stay out until like, you know, 10 o'clock, basically like in the summer until it gets dark out. 
and everyone's on top of each other, but everybody becomes like part of this weird little family kind of on, on like your block on your street. And you get used to that. And then like, as they get older, I keep all the same friends. So like I have friends that I've known for, for, you know, 30 years, 35 years, basically my entire life. And, uh, 20, 30, 40 really close friends that also never left. So anywhere, anytime I go anywhere else, the makeup of those neighborhoods is not the same. It's like a, a real stretch to go find somebody and like meet somebody somewhere. But yeah. also like my entire life, everything got rooted here at a young age and it just kind of stayed that way. You know, you know it's, it's similar to us. Like we're Armenians and um, Armenians from Glendale and Glendale in LA is like where like all the Armenians are and, and, and all of our friends, like pretty much most of them stayed here. So it's like, it's nice to kind of grow up together and then everyone kind of gets married and has kids and like, you know, everyone just kind of is in this like community and it, get, it gets really hard to like move out of that. Right. Cause you're just like, I gotta completely uproot and meet brand new people, which is cool too, but it's, it makes it more difficult. Nah, it's a magnet, man. It's like, yeah. it's also, it's everybody that everybody in my life, everyone I grew up with, like so many, I'm the only person who's really in, in tech, one or two other people, a couple of friends in finance, but a lot of them are like, you know, they're, they're not trying to do like, they're trying to live a happy life and they do live really, really happy lives. They're not trying to chase some nonsense, you know, mythical tech thing like myself and a lot of people that i've met along the way it's better off that way i don't want to i don't want to meet more people like me i have a you know what i mean yeah. like I, I work with people like me and work with myself all day i'm stuck in my own head nonstop. it's good to have to be rooted in people who don't act like you in a good in the best possible way 100 percent. you know it's funny though because like whether you're italian or armenian those two groups came from their own land so they were always just together sure. And then you take them out and put them in this like non-homogenous place, especially in New York, where everything feels like it's in this five-mile radius and everything's like in the air and not on the ground. And somehow these people all just come back together. So yeah, I mean, DNA is powerful. That's, Didn't think we were going to go to this direction with this conversation, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, so I'm, I got I got really heavy really quickly. I think that there is there are the Armenian culture and Italian culture are very similar in that. And I I just realized it too coming like Christmas with my family, and I don't see so many of them for the full year. And I think like I'm the only one that's kind of strayed away and like moved to the city and all these things. When they see me, I think they have like a thing where it's like, ah, oh, that guy who left like the nuclear family structure. And like it's, a, I'm sure it's a little bit of a like, ah, oh, this guy again. You know what I mean? I got to try and get back to that though because it is so true. Kind of share a little bit about like what your childhood was like. You know, what kind of kid were you? Let's let's say like in, you know, elementary, middle school, high school. What were you into? What kind of stuff like did you like to do? I think it was uh like you know. I have a I have really strong memories of being a kid, and I have some that I just completely forgot. But it was also um, a situation where, like again, like the the community like kind of raised me a little bit. And when I was young, like my my parents were super young. They had a, a restaurant in the neighborhood, and they they worked like twenty four hours a day. My mom was a chef; she's an incredible cook even to this day. Um, my dad had this space with you know him, his brother, my whole family kind of worked there. And um, when I was at, I get home from school, I would kind of go there. And like sit at the bar and you meet a bunch of crazy people and I do some homework or whatever. Then like other days where it was weekends or summers, I kind of just be in my neighborhood, like sitting on my stoop. And like, uh, you know, my grandmother who helped raise me, we lived in her apartment. And I would go downstairs, start the morning super early and then like run outside. And it was like whatever went on for the whole day it was like me and, and whoever else was in the neighborhood. And it was always a bunch of older kids. And there was like, you know, the one kid who skateboarded and the other kid who like played sports. It was a weird mix of memories I have of getting exposure to so many different people and so many different types of things early on. And I think that that led to a few things. One is that like um, a bad habit. I started, I started like cursing and trying to like stay out at a really young age. And I took that into school and would and get in trouble a lot for it. Like I was, uh, my parents have stories of me like getting in trouble for using the F word way too early in like pre-K <laughs> and kindergarten type of stuff. 
And then also a part of it was that like I got really comfortable, I think, being alone as a kid and like meeting new people and being outgoing. And I was the the first grandkid. And in like an Italian family, that's like the first male baby is like it can do no wrong. You know what I mean? So I got super lucky in that I was allowed to kind of do whatever I want and run around crazy and never really get in trouble and had a bunch of people around me saying like, you're the best, you're going to be great, that type of stuff. And I remember a lot of that stuff now. And in retrospect, it led to like a good two decades where I really thought I was better than everybody at everything. You couldn't tell me I couldn't do something. You know what I mean? And that was instilled at like the pre-K age really, really early on. I try, I'm less like that now, but it is something I try and instill with like teams that I bring in now, people that I work with. If somebody's doing a great job, you have to kind of tell them. And if you feel like they're going to be great at something, you got to tell them. I got really, really, really lucky that early on, I had people like really propping me up, my family, friends, people around me. And that kind of translated, even though it was early in life, to to you know some of the stuff that I got into later in life for sure. Do you think that that gives you a level of confidence that's perhaps not authentic or not actually deserved? I think it it like it'll bite you in the ass if you let it. No question, you know. Like there's 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 people. That's that bridge between like confidence and arrogance. And I've always because I'm always also the first person to say like oh, I suck at something. I, I got to learn how to do that better. Or like, you know, put myself down in, in a context of like, there's better designers around me now and there's better like, you know, better entrepreneurs around me now and there's people who are, who are just at a base level, like better at illustration than me. There's these elements of, of realization of being self-aware that you start to learn as you get older, no question. I think that the idea of like someone being a genius in general is one that I never really subscribed to. There's a... um. There's a, there's a, I think he's a music educator. I forget his, Brian Eno, I think his name is, but it was a quote he had that pops up every now and then in a talk he did a long time ago. It's like great ideas, you know, they come from societies, they're generated by communities, but they're usually articulated by an individual. So being around a lot of different people, different cultures, different ideas, and then having people like be like, you're great at this, you could do this. I think that's super healthy because it's really just about articulating stuff that you see, putting it on paper and bringing it to life and getting through that execution. When someone just thinks they're great at something for no reason and there's no payoff and then it's just a bunch of people propping them up, it gets super dangerous when they have to deal with reality. I've tried to stay away from that as best I can, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm not as self-aware as I thought I was. There's a possibility that I've been wrong <laughs> for, for, for the, the better part of four decades. Yeah, you know, it, it, for sure. And it's so important, you know, for kids, like when, when they do display like a natural talent or, or some, you know, they're kind of generally better at something than kind of the rest of their peers – it really helps them kind of figure out what their life path might be or something that they're passionate about or like a, a path to go down versus if people aren't really giving you that feedback, it's easy to be just confused as to what what am I good at? Like, what, what should I do? And so I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but like, what were some of the things that you would hear kind of your peers or community tell you that you were kind of better at than other things perhaps? I think it was like drawing early on and art was always, always my thing. And I think that I'll tell you where I got lucky is that in, in, especially in like high school and, and like the later parts of like grade school, like seventh, eighth grade in the high school, we, I grew up in this, in this time where like, this is the nineties into the two thousands when I'm in high school, basically everything was still like sports and the idea of like nerds being cool or art being cool or theater being cool. It meant you were part of this kind of subculture that was the other kids in high school but I got lucky in that that was during this shift. A, I think a little bit of that confidence meant I didn't care what people said about me in high school for sure. But also I, got, I was friends with everybody. Like there was never a time where I, I wasn't interested in what other people were doing. And art is really not this. And like I wound up going to school for art and wound up, you know, paying my way to where I am right now, basically. 
but it wasn't something that like a lot of kids from Brooklyn were kind of into. It was like play football, you know, hang out with girls. It was like the stuff that you would expect like the old school 60s and 70s era jocks to do. And that was like the high school experience for so many people. It kind of turned into this thing that I was able to use it as like a mix of a lot of things. And it really was and still is kind of therapy for me. It's a place to like go and put your head down, you know, put thoughts on paper is literally starting with an illustration with drawing, turning it into whether it's an app or a website or it's just a drawing for the sake of having something or having a piece of art. That for me was like this real respite from everything that was happening. But it was also the thing that I felt like I got a lot of people saying like, this is, you should do something with this. And I got a yeah. lot of push from behind from a lot of really smart people and awesome people that were around me that like were not into it, but understood that this was an opportunity. And they always kind of had my back on that side of it. You know? what, what was your earliest memory of getting into art? Like, how did it happen? Did you just kind of fall into it? Or was there like someone that you were inspired by or? or yeah, like there that? was a few. I mean, there was, um, my mom was also like, she's just an artist in a million different ways. And, and from like culinary and like putting, she's an awesome baker and she can make cakes look like art. That was always her thing really when I was, when I was young and she was young too, you know, she was, my parents were super young when they had me. So there was like, I was looking at them and always looked up to them and still do obviously. But my mom was just always like doodling or drawing or doing something cool. I was always trying to emulate it. I was into like cars and all the stuff that little kids would be into and just started immediately drawing all of that. Any of the stuff I saw that looked unique, I was like taking a pen and putting it on paper. And that turned into like um, understanding what like still life was versus some of the other, like there was, it was the idea of, of seeing something that's either, you know, real life, a photo or something and wanting to translate that into my version. I was doing that at a super, super young age. So it was like drawing cars and superheroes and all the things that anybody, any other kid would. And then when it started to become like a, a real possibility that it could be like going to school for art and doing something that didn't require like having good grades or paying a ton of money on loans or anything, anything like that, then it became real. And that was, that was a, an art teacher at my school. We had uh, at my high school, we had like the art program wasn't real. It was tucked in a basement and there was a guy, Mr. Waite. He was my, uh, my Jonathan Waite. He was my, my art teacher. He was one of the few teachers that I really remember. He passed away like a decade ago. And I, that was the first time I'd heard about him in so long. And I felt bad. I didn't really know what was going on. But he was always a guy that was like, he knew I was kind of good at drawing and I, that I could potentially like get into a school or turn it into a career. And anytime that it would be like five or six in the afternoon and like friends of mine would come downstairs like, yo, we're going out, we're going to do something. It would be like, go down the block to buy like 40s and drink by the schoolyard in Brooklyn, like something super stupid. I remember him, he'd be like, you don't have to go do that. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. And that was always like a thing where he was trying to get to me. Like it felt like some weird kind of like movie moment i remembered a lot where he would be like you could stay behind and do this this isn't you're not missing anything i remember thinking in my head like this old guy is right he's got way more wisdom than i do i could probably just use this as like a method of a having fun but b turning it into a career that was like the earliest memories that i have rob i'm curious uh, deviating a little bit from the chronology of the conversation but when was the first moment or first memory of you feeling humbled per se uh you know you talk about this 20 year period where everyone's like, you're the best at this. You're the best at that. Where you realize like, Oh, this is reality. I'm not better than everybody. There's a lot. I have to learn a lot of skills. I don't have a lot of people. I don't know. Do you have a memory of that moment? I mean, was there a moment you felt that? Yeah, there was, uh, there was a couple a, I mean, it starts when like you're around more people than your grandma and your cousins and your aunts and uncles. And then and no one, and no one's telling you the best anymore. That happens pretty quickly. But also in that same situation, like in high school, I, I thought I, there was like a couple of things that they um, submitted my work to. That I thought I was like a shoe in for. 
And then we got really close to the very end. I stopped showing up at classes and I was like done at that point. I already got into a school and like I was getting a scholarship and everybody was like, I, in my head, I was, I was like, I'm done with all this. I'm good. And like, I didn't get this thing. And it went to this kid, my, this other kid, Matt, his name, Matt Rotante, his name was, he was in high school with me. And I was way, I felt like I was a way better designer and a way better artist than him. And they gave him like this weird accolade thing. Like, I forget what it was called. It was like some national thing or whatever. And I didn't know until they presented it. It was one of those things where like, you're about to walk on stage. You think you won. And then they knock you down. They're like, nah, it wasn't you, bro. Snubbed. I remember thinking in my head like, shit. I was like, I, th- I really, I just, I was so, the last semester of like high school, I just stopped caring entirely. And then it was like, all right, back to work. Yeah. Um, I, I guess going into like college and, and beyond maybe like early career days, did you really have like a clear idea of how you would apply these like design skills and art skills to a career? Um, were you thinking like, I, I know you, I think I saw you studied like graphic design and, and sort of marketing and stuff. So it sounds like you were thinking a little bit more like that route as opposed to like being a fine artist for example yeah i mean it turned into that i got you, you realize quickly that arts like i i looked at it like i've always had respect i've never like loved money but i've had respect for money and always wanted to live like a purpose-driven life where you're getting paid for the things that you're good at and, and the things that you love it's hard like you just realize really quickly that when you step up anywhere and you go into any you go up one class to a bunch of people who are who are very much like you and at the same skill level or better it's super hard to turn into a career. So when I got to school, we had the opportunity to, to switch like majors to, to the equivalent of a design and communication degree. And it was really based around, you know, the internet was still relatively new. This I'm going to age myself right now, but like the iPhone wasn't out yet. Everything was like websites and it was just like, everyone's got to learn like flesh and all these crazy archaic programs that no one uses now. But I was, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, you could pick things up really quickly. So I was just trying to be as self-taught as possible. And you get like, you know, a uh, stolen version of Photoshop off like, you know, what LimeWire, wherever I got it from. Yeah. And you start to learn Tor- a little Torrance. bit of code. Yeah, man, I was going through Torrance, you know what I mean? Like I'm on, <laughs> I'm on Pirate Bay and you have this computer full of stuff. And, like I got to learn it now. And then that turned into like the same way. I never thought like translating art, like fine art into design would be a one-to-one. And it turned out that it, it really felt that way. And I got way more interested in it. It also was going to open up a career path. It's hard to like, I don't want to leave school and, and be figuring out what I was doing. Nothing, there's not anything wrong with that, but I didn't want to leave school and not be making money. And that was really like part of the motivation. So I was trying to do as much, learn as much as I could in the design space and do as much freelance work as I possibly could while I was still at school. So I could get out and, ha- and be able to figure out if I could do this on my own or I need to go get a job basically. And that's kind of what it turned into. Were there any artists you were inspired by? Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, still like art individual artists. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there still are like there's, there's people that I would run into, especially in Philadelphia. So like um, Steve Powers, who who's, goes by the moniker Espo, who was like a, um, a graffiti artist, but now is like a really well-known artist. And he's got a space in, in Brooklyn, actually on 4th Avenue. He was, he was from Philadelphia and I was in school in Philadelphia. And like his stuff was super prevalent. It was big block, really graphic. It was done as art, but it was typography. And that to me was like mind blowing. I was trying to recreate everything he did. And then even from... When I was like, you know, studying art and I was trying to sort of become like what I thought would be an artist, there were there were the obvious ones like Roy Lichtenstein and some of the pop artists, people that refer to as pop artists that are really just contemporary designers in my mind that were taking art, but they made it look and feel like like a poster or like graffiti or like a book cover or like an album cover. And that to me was like way, way more interesting than painting still life or trying to be like an illustrator. And that led to an easy transition. But that also was like 
when I got out of school and even when I was in school, I, I got into music really quickly because it was a it was a path of least resistance. A lot of the work I did translated really well in the music industry and and with album artwork and packaging. And that became like an obvious first step for me. And that's that's where I wound up as soon as I got out of school. So um yeah, I guess like talk a little bit about like early career days. I mean, what were some of the biggest takeaways that you learned, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you were sort of just building more design skills and things like that. But outside of that, what were some of the things that you picked up? Yeah, I mean, every, every, everything that I was trying to do was all in my mind, like learn something new was do something new, do something new. But the, the first steps were like, back then, you know, Instagram, I'm saying back then so much, Instagram didn't exist. And it wasn't yeah. a place where you can, there was nowhere to display your work. You had to just be like in it. You had to be outside basically to sort of meet people, have conversations, get people's phone numbers. It was garbage. It was the networking was the most impossible thing on earth. The biggest takeaways, honestly, like luck is the biggest driver of, you could be good at anything, but you need an element of luck. You need to be in the right place at the right time. And you could put yourself in that position. I tried to do that as much as I could. I was taking I said yes to every single person who asked me for anything. And I was given like massive discounts on work. So when I got out of school, um, I had three or four relationships in in music at that point, just from like a couple of little freelance projects I had done during school. One of them was with um, someone in Atlanta uh, named DJ Drama, who's who's very well known now, and he's he he has a giant record label, and it's like Jack Harlow and Little Uzi Vert, and he manages all these kids. He's just he's a monster now, but back then he was very new, and he was working with a bunch of rappers who were big now but weren't then. And I was doing two or three things for him, and that kind of started to pick up. Then one or two of those pieces were in a print shop in Queens, completely by chance. Uh, this is 2004. Kanye West manager at the time walked in and saw the work and asked who did it. And the print shop gave him my number. And he said, we're starting this new label, Good Music. Do you want to come in and do some of the work? He's like, do you know who the, this is? a guy named Kanye West. He's coming out. The album's coming out like two weeks at that point. And he's like, do you know who that is? Like, yeah, of course. He's like, all right, come in. We'll talk about what we're working on. And it really was a startup. And that was the first, that was like the first time I got thrown into like a little bit of a corporate environment, but it was like a small office tucked away in the Sony building on the 17th floor, way in the back. And it felt nothing like any other business or anyone, any other project I'd ever freelance for. It was a bunch of people trying to figure it out with a really small budget at that point. And that was like where it became the idea that you got to keep, you got to stay on radar. If you want to keep, we want to stay on anyone's radar, you got to keep, keep working. And it's like, keep saying yes and like the luck will happen but that turned into like something absurdly lucky where from that point forward it got way way easier to get work yeah i didn't realize good music started that long ago i thought it was like it's it seems like it was more of a recent thing but i can imagine like throughout the years you know whether it was like john legend or common or all these like different artists he was working with like was probably yeah. affiliated with that but i guess in your experience like what was just gotten older bro yeah maybe my like yeah my, my 2003 was 20 years ago <laughs> yeah crazy <laughs> but yeah i so how long were you there how long were you at good music and and did that kind of did you feel like at that point your career was starting to kind of take off a little bit as, as like a designer i mean it, it was so when i got there like it wasn't what people know as good music now not even close so the artists back then like big sean came in 2007 or 8 i think but back then it was like um devo harris who's kanye's cousin he has an awesome company now um that does like uh interactive videos murdering he's crushing it right now 
but he was uh, college roommates with John Legend, and that was uh, that was how Kanye met him. It was the first, and he was in like the documentary. He's the cousin who comes up to the car. And he's got like the big hair, and he looks like a disaster. Yep, yep. But he's the man, one of the smart, the one that, the one that he has like a little bit of a scuffle, not scuffle, but like an argument with or something. Yeah, uh, he's and he's he's yeah. like one of the smartest people. Uh, adventures, is it adventure? I believe it's adventures. His new company. You got to take a look at it. it's awesome. But anyway, long story short. He he had like one or two artists and presented, and that became John Legend. Common was looking for a was yeah, he was already executive producing his album, so he was on it. But it was like um, this mishmash of people, and it was like, what do you want to work on? Was like the the question, and it was like, all right, you got to present stuff. And and Kanye always wanted to have like a hand in a lot of it. He was micromanaging everything, but correctly. Once he went on tour, what was left was like a bunch of artists that no one would even know now, like a group called Sarah. Uh, there was a singer, Mr. Hudson from London, all these people who were brand, even John Legend, brand new artists, and they needed like anything and everything. So one day I'd be making a website. The next day I'd be doing like tour merch. The day after it would be like logos for these individual artists. It was just a nonstop flow of work from 2000, like and beginning of 2005, realistically, up until like from August 2004, when the album came out through 2005 into around 2007. And so like, Two, three days a week, I would just show up there, hang out, see what people needed, and just present new ideas, basically. And it would get emailed around. People would say yes, but it, it turned into like the best learning experience because there were no guarantees. It was basically a startup. They assumed, and, and like, you know, John Monopoly's manager at the time said, like, everything here, like, leverage this, use it as you can to go somewhere else because this shit's not going to last forever, basically. Um, and that's what it became. And so, like, every relationship that started there led, even though, like, you know, the budget or the the label got dropped for the first time in like 2008. It was under Sony. It got dropped. It got picked back up by Def Jam after that. That's a new version you see. But up to that point, it was real startup. It was like, come in, learn as much as you can, absorb as much as you can, meet as many people, design as much stuff as you can. And when you leave here, you'll have a, a contact list full of people. And that's what it turned into. And then it was like, from that point forward, basically once a year after that, in every other project, every other company I worked at, every startup, everyone I met, I wound up having full-time jobs, a bunch of consulting stuff. But from that alone, I got like one or two albums a year that I would either creative direct or art direct, and they paid every bill. Up until like we started Rally, up until 2015, the last album I did was um, uh, Rick Ross' album, um, Black Market. And that was like the last check that I got from a label. But that was the last time I needed it, thank God. You know what I mean? Like that was, and that was like, it just, it was always something where it was keep working, keep meeting people, and it turned into like this machine. Rob, at this point of the podcast, people know you're the founder of a company called Rally. <laughs> so, yeah, it took a little time to get there. My bad. Oh, no, 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 no. We're probably we're not even going to get there yet. We probably won't get there until the last three minutes just to mess with people. Uh, but <laughs> they, they know it's that it's a platform where you can essentially buy or have equity and collectible items. Um, but I'm curious, throughout your early career or even in high school, were you personally interested in any of the things we now see on the platform, whether it was baseball, basketball cards, or art, or whatever it may be? Was that something you were already collecting, or was that just percolating throughout the years? Not always, always. I mean, there would be like, and this is the same thing. This is like a, a Brooklyn thing. There was, you know, in the my old neighborhood was like every block you have a couple things. It's like a pizzeria, a liquor store, and like a hobby shop was like a thing when I was younger. So you can, you know, you're getting, you're getting pizza, liquor, and like baseball cards. It's every single street on like 13th Avenue and on 10th Avenue and all these different like little neighborhoods have a million of those. So me and my friends, when we were younger, we would like, you know, put money together and go buy like, try and buy like a box of Fleer Ultra 
to try and get like a Shaq rookie card. And that was, there was a little bit of logic with that where it was like, you know, no one was thinking about collecting to make money, but you know, certain things are worth, are, are potentially worth money because of the name or the thing attached to them. You always knew to like keep that one safe. That wasn't one that you were like being, being frivolous with. And the same thing up until, you know, all the way through getting out of school and no, it's no longer childhood, but there's certain things you keep. Like I, I still had my first iPhone and that to me, I didn't know what it was going to be. But I knew that there was this really pivotal moment in like my career and in what was going to happen for design and all these things. So it was like, keep that. So there was always the idea of keeping something and holding on to it. The thought process now where you think about it as an investment or think about it as an asset wasn't necessarily there. But like I collected everything because it was always an idea of like, this is going to be special. Sneakers was probably the first time I started thinking about things as money because like I wear every pair of sneakers. but there were all these relationships I started getting from when I got out of school and I'm working now and I'm at these labels and I'm doing all these things. So it's like getting sneakers got easier. And that became like the first time where I would, I would realize like, all right, I just got this pair of sneakers for 150 bucks. They're worth 500 right now. I can't be messing around with these, even though I want to wear them. It was like, hold on to them, you know? Right. You know, it's funny you say that I have these two kid cousins every time they did just the other day, they'll open a pack of Pokemon cards and hmm. the only thing that they're looking for is a Charizard or that's that it. shiny Bulbasaur, Pikachu, whatever it's called. And I don't know if they yeah. know if there's a monetary value to it or not. They probably just think it's cool. Um, and that's the only thing that they give a shit about not bending. And then they'll give me the rest as if like, yeah, you know, take this trash. Squirtle, here you go. <laughs> yeah, tossing squirtles. <laughs> but yo, yo, you, just, you just described the big difference between like generations. That like rally was born out of this idea that that big finance was built for and operates in the way that we know it for the people that have access to it. But they, you know, those that group, the people with money, they already they always have access to the best assets and they know where they are. You know, they know where the bodies are buried to a certain degree. They can get their hands on them. They have the money to deploy if they need to or the leverage to get it. As a kid, you don't even think like that. But these kids now, they do have an unfair advantage. The information asymmetry is way different. They know like a holographic Charizard is important and they know it's valuable. Like they, they're able to assign dollar value to it in a way that our generation couldn't. You knew it was special. It's like I shouldn't bend this Michael Jordan card. It might be worth something someday. But you weren't thinking like there's a potential life changing amount of money if I find the right Charizard card. I feel like even my little cousins and people like they get it now. These kids understand what money is in a way that I never did, you know. Yeah, but don't you think that that's going to create a uh, greater supply of these things and thus reduce the value? I mean, most people probably threw away their Pokemon cards, their baseball, their the Mickey Mantle baseball cards. Uh, there's that whole story with the Tops Warehouse owner dumping the cards out in the ocean. I think it was like in the 50s, Mantle and Robinson. Yeah, 52 Mantle set. Like there's yeah. less of it now, and that's why the value increases. I mean, same thing with real estate or crypto or stocks. It's really like about the demand as well. And so these kids are starting to understand and almost have that unfair advantage you talk about. Will the same things have value or will other things that are yet unknown rise to the top and become valuable? Yeah, I think that you're right. I think to, to start at the end, I think these new things that are popping up right now, like collectible technology as an example, like no one thought sealed iPhones were going to be a thing like four years ago, five years ago. Now everyone's like, if you have a sealed iPhone, it's the craziest thing ever. And they're, they're not going to mess with, they're going to hold on to it or bring it to auction. I think that's the one thing that this, that access to information has changed to is that, you know, the best brands are built on behavior. They're not built on like the logo or whatever, the way that like to use the iPhone or Pokemon or anything as the example, 
those are like asset classes now because they've influenced uh, the behavior of huge groups of people who weren't collectors before, weren't necessarily thinking about being collectors or being investors or, or looking for these as asset classes before. They have no choice to now. So it's like the total addressable market expands every time a new thing comes to market, it feels like. Like the fact that a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old kid right now knows that there's a chance that there's a $200,000 you know, Charizard card inside of a deck is something that that did that thought process did not exist and that market did not exist but that brand was so strong and it's so relevant for my generation and will be for future generations too one of the biggest brands on earth basically they're going to keep expanding that addressable market with the new assets that get printed from that brand it feels like there's there's like a supply demand that yeah. keeps stepping up with each other right now with a lot of them how, how much Obviously, these are like this is considered the secondary market because it's not like the actual producers of the cards or the you know the materials that are you know being sold directly. But how much do you think the secondary market affects the primary market? Yeah, I mean, I'll say it from a rally perspective. With without the secondary markets that existed before rally, and like you know, sneakers had it with StockX and a few others, and even like you think about crypto, I think about like Coinbase. Like you're not when you when you buy. When you buy Bitcoin on, on Coinbase, you're not like minting off the block of uh, of uh, the transaction block that created that particular Bitcoin or create or the node that created that that particular cryptocurrency or that NFT. But it's like the the interest always finds its way to the path of least resistance. It's really hard to be the first, but the secondary markets that are around for so many of these asset class that we look at now. They allow people to kind of watch from the sidelines, see some price movement, and jump in at the appropriate time. And then it becomes something where it's like it happened with with video games during the pandemic, especially during the pandemic. It happened with so many other collectible classes because one or two people made that primary purchase, or you know, the right amount of time had passed from the time that something came out that now it's a certain vintage or it's classic or whatever. And then you have like the auction results starting to pop up. People see the headlines, and now it's like, oh shit. Mario Brothers sells for $125,000. That's crazy. Now it's available on Rally. Then the one on Rally winds up breaking the world record, sells for $2 million. And now it's the aha moment all from that secondary market. You know, I think it, 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 op- it expands people's opinions on what could be real when they see the liquidity. Yeah. So um, you started Rally in 2016. It was like six, seven years ago. How did it all kind of come together? You know, Where did the idea come from? What was happening at the time? And um, how did you end up meeting your co-founders? And yeah, so I I'll start with the co-founders. So so Chris uh, Chris Bruno, who's my was was the person who really he came to me with this idea in 2014 or 2015. He was like, there I think there's a there's a group of people, a lot of enthusiasts for things like classic cars, who want access to the best stuff, have no no idea how to get there. And then we started thinking about what it could be. What was Chris doing at the time? So Chris was is like a serial entrepreneur. He was an operator. He was at a company um, that was doing. A bu- he he had started or been really early to a bunch of companies. He was someone I went to high school with. He was a little bit older than me, but he was like the super smart kid. And it was always like, if you're going to do something with somebody, do it with him. So when he called me, he wanted to meet up at, at the Ace Hotel at Midtown. He's like, let's grab coffee. Why you just, just, he thought like you might be a good person to start. He knew like, with. again, like out of all of our friends, so few of them do what, what him and I do. And he knew I was like a creative who could like put together an app, who could build an app quick if we needed to. He was the person who knew how to operate a business. Our third co-founder, Max, went to college with Chris. I knew about him through Chris, but he was in finance. He was at Barclays doing IPOs and doing private placement deals and mergers for over a decade. So he knew the financial aspect of it. So the three of us together, we always kind of knew we, we want to work together on something like this. We'd all been collectors in our own right. We all understood that there's these huge enthusiast groups that want access to the best stuff, have no chance. And then it was like the real point 
of what we're trying to prove is that if there's a hundred people that lived on earth, one would control 50% of all the wealth. And that was just like a place that was changing. The one big sort of twist and Chris came to the table with this too, was that the jobs act had had was like relatively new. And that for people that don't know is what's leveraged, what, what crowdfunding platforms leverage a lot of them where the SEC and the government kind of saw that if you want to bridge the wealth gap, you got to let non-accredited investors, people who don't have millions of dollars, invest in some of the same stuff that the wealthy yep. get access to. And they looked at it in context of like angel investments and crowdfunding and stuff like that. But we sat down with lawyers and we're like, could we do this in a way where we take something like a classic car or a Mickey Mantle rookie card or anything that's out of reach, break it into shares and fractionalize it and use that same, leverage those same rules and those same new laws to allow people who want to spend 20, 30, 100, 200, $500 on an investment, do it on this platform. And the, the long and short was like, yeah, if there are broker dealers involved and here's some, a bunch of steps you have to take, but you could theoretically do it. So that was like the aha moment. Then it was just, as soon as that happened, we were all working our own jobs. We all kind of put our heads down and uh, left those jobs, left some of that security behind and said, let's just build this and see where it goes. And then you know how it goes. All of a sudden you look down and six years passed and all of a sudden it's business. Like that's just how it happened basically. Yeah. What's what was your approach from the get go? Because like any marketplace, you know, it's like you got the people who are selling these things or putting these things up for you know fractionalization and and kind of sharing, and then there are the people who are like investing, right? The investors. Uh, how did like who did you approach first? Obviously, I mean, I'm guessing you have to have some inventory on there, obviously, to have people investing. But what was your kind of approach to that piece? Yeah, I mean, we knew that like the underwriting standards were going to be important, but I think that what we did a little bit different. The first three assets that we got were cars, and it was a, a 1955 Porsche, which we uh, convinced somebody who was a car collector who Chris knew to kind of like find the right car and and put some of the cash out for it. The other two were a 1977 Lotus Esprit, which is a super, it's like a very uh, unique looking car. It's one that, it's a supercar, but from an era of supercars where it didn't get any respect. And uh, the other one yeah. was a Ferrari Testarossa, which everybody recognizes. Uh, Chris bought the 77 Lotus, and I think Max bought the bought the Ferrari. Um, and they put they had both made money at that point. I hadn't, and they put it out of pocket and paid for it. And that was so outright, not like investing not in out, a piece of it. Just outright, outright, like they bought yeah. it outright to put it on the platform, and that was like all the money both of them had right. basically, and, and getting a loan, doing all that type of stuff. And then we put it through the process of going through the SEC. But the reason we picked them is like we picked, we want to pick three that made sense. That Speedster was really, really important because everybody knows it's like the start of Porsche. It was 1955. It's this very specific color, but like. We picked that Lotus, and that was the first one that was really that was the first IPO we ever ran. It was the first car that ever traded on Rally. It was also like the start of this where we had to get to family and friends and convince them it was going to work. Instead of just getting something that we felt like had a history of appreciation and would continue to appreciate and was the smart investment, we wanted to get something that was relevant. So that was the car, and it was the the brand that that at that point Tesla had been built on, and they were using like engineers from the Lotus factory in Ireland, and it was this story that. Elon Musk would tell. So it was relevant in pop culture at that point, And those stories starting to come out. So for us, we always wanted to get assets, whether it's a car or a baseball card or a dinosaur fossil or an NFT that are important in the moment, but we feel like are going to continue to be relevant in the future from a, cop, a pop culture perspective. So that was kind of where we landed with those first three. It's everything sucked in the beginning like it always does. Nobody wanted to give us any money. No VCs wanted to talk to us. It made no sense to anybody. Like everybody, all of our friends were yesing us to death. Like, yeah, awesome idea. It'll probably work. But it started to pick up when we did uh, we did a pop-up. We used like the, mon- the less of the money that we had in the bank to do a pop-up on Wooster Street in New York. Um, and we basically just opened the doors, put two cars in there, 
and like gave away some some t-shirts and like and like alcohol to people who would show up for a weekend around Thanksgiving in uh 2016 and it worked and like a bunch of people accidentally showed up and um the Kardashians were in town and by chance Scott Disick came with like his kids and a bunch of friends and they took pictures of it and it was on Instagram and stuff so that was like this inflection point that was again back to pure luck we put this in the right place we got good weather that weekend we left the doors open on a space that had a garage door so we could fit cars inside of it. It was in the middle of Soho on a cool block. We sold some merch. We sold some shares. And then it started to pick up, started to get a little bit of press and a little bit here and there. And a couple of VCs started paying attention. And from that point forward, it kind of just kept moving forward. And that was it. So, Rob, explain how that works. The two co-founders had bought the Lotus and Ferrari. And if others came and bought shares, did that dilute the ownership interest that the co-founders had? And how did that work back then? Yeah, they basically because we couldn't we couldn't raise VC money early. So like the plan was like I would pay for the dev of the first version of the app, and they would pay for the car for the first two cars that we needed. But all of it was like giving it to the company. So they bought like Chris bought that seventy seven Lotus, and then and then basically gave it to the platform. And once it's on the platform, we ran it through. The way the process works is that we we have what's called an offering circular. We prepare this document for every asset that IPO is on Rally that kind of looks and feels like an IPO uh, memorandum. It explains all the costs, the price per share, how many shares is being split into, the risk factors that are associated with it, the asset description, so it tells you exactly what it is. The SEC gets that, basically gives it a check mark, sends it back to us, and now that car is a company. How long is that process? It used to be, when we first started, it was eight months. Now we've gotten it down to around 10 days. So the first ones wow. took forever, but now it's, it's very templatized. And like we have a good relationship with the SEC and, and we do things very above board. It's all public domain. It's all available in the app and on sec.gov if you search for us. So you could see every single offering that we've run and all the detail. But they set it up in such a way that, um, you know, once we get that paperwork back, it's basically no longer a 1977 Lotus Esprit. It's Lotus Esprit.LLC. And it's a business that operates and owns one asset, which is that car. And it's broken up to those yeah. 10,000 shares and it's whatever, $10 a share, whatever it's going to be. We run an IPO the way anybody, any company would IPO. And once that happens, there's a 90-day lockup. After that lockup's over, it trades on our secondary market through broker dealers the same way stock might. So really, it's like a lot of complexities in the background that Max and his team on the finance side have just absolutely crushed on and made it so seamless. And that's what every other fractional company who uses the same, the same regulation, they basically right. copy and pasted what they did early on. So you have the, the the original owner of an asset. Let's say they want to IPO it through Rally, and then you have people who are investing in it, like fractional shares. And then is there like another piece where people are interested in buying these assets, so that like for example, the investors can like liquidate? Yeah. And is is that through Rally as well? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you just answered that, but yeah, nah, it's 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 a different. So we've tried to like create yeah. as much on Rally as people recognize from kind of the equity market, so that's not too foreign. So there are buyouts all the time. So we've had we've had close to fifty buyouts since the since the since the platform started. We've had around sixty three or sixty four offers that were qualified that got put into investors, but investors vote on it. So what happens is if you wanted to buy anything on Rally, you can scroll through the app and you see everything from like the Declaration of Independence to dinosaur fossils to classic cars to Birkin bags. And we try and we always try and source like the one of very few or the rarest in the world. So everything's for sale. You have to just make an offer. You got to make a tender offer to the investors. They have to approve it. If 51% approve a buyout price, it goes to our third-party advisory board who kind of ratifies it and everyone gets paid out on it. So, you know, at any given time, we'll have, we have one going right now for a, an early comic book, Silver Surfer number four, 
which is uh, like a $65,000 buyout offer. And in the app, if you open it up and go to that particular asset, you'll see it live, like where the vote is right now. And that kind of indicates what's going to happen with the asset if it exits. Do you guys run some sort of a disposition process where you guys put an asset asset up for sale like publicly? We're starting to do more of that now. We tested that for the first time with um, a pair of the earliest Nikes, this pair of like Waffle Moon shoes, one of the first 20 pairs ever made. Only because if we'll do that, A, if we feel like there's an opportunity to sell and it's something where the market right now dictates that this might be the right time, but also we want to make sure it's in the right venue. So we did that one with Sotheby's. It didn't sell because the reserve wasn't met, but we did that one with Sotheby's who was doing a huge Nike auction. It was getting a ton of press. And we want to get we want to be able to a get the best deal for our investors, but also do things where it gets the right attention. So if we could do something like that, and we're starting to, to experiment more with features like that, where you can if enough people choose to bring something to auction, then we'll test the waters with it and exit it a little bit more proactively than waiting on a buyout offer to come in. What was yeah. your role early on at Rally, and what has that become after seven years? Yeah, I mean it's a, a little bit of everything. I think early on it was like the creative side was all me and we still we still never had marketing. Like we never had true marketing function at the company. We have a, a amazing head of growth uh named Nancy who who came to us from Cameo and was just like knows how to how to run campaigns, how to get people excited about things. We have, you know, a great team on content side with uh Lisa Mason and, and Will Stern who writes a bunch of our threads and they do a bunch of our long form content. But early on, like a six person team, finance was always gonna be the backbone for us early on and making sure that we're doing things right because we have to deal with the SEC and there's so much legal work that goes into it. That that and the operations were always going to be the focus early on. So anything else from something like designing the app to the email campaigns to doing press to to like, you know, making sure that people get excited about things, to running promos, doing referral programs and loyalty programs, all that stuff was me early on. I've been lucky in that we built this team out. Like my role now still is is chief product officer. But that in, in reality encompasses everything that makes people care about what we do from the consumer side. And I've been really, really lucky in that I brought an amazing VP of product and, and Andy Chang, who's like my my right hand, and and Alec Levine, who's our our head PM, and Shane and Melina, and all these great designers that we have now. Where I, my day to day is so much of it now. Like we just came out of a product meeting like an hour ago. It's about like the high level what we want to achieve in Q1 and how we can sort of you know holistically make sure that spreads throughout the whole company, throughout every communication channel, everything that a user sees. So to this day, I think it's evolved in a place where anything a user sees and interacts with, I probably had some role in it at this point, but it very much, it translates across all the verticals of the company now. And that's kind of what's expected from anybody at the company. We want to make sure that if you do something well, if you do something better and you do something best like that, no matter what your title is, we kind of put you in a position to at least be contributing in the way that you know you're most effective at. And then we could sort of, you know, quantify from there whether or not that's the right role. And I think everybody here subscribes to that as like getting where you fit in a little bit. It sounds like you guys started with like a niche with the cars. Is that why it's called Rally Road, by the way, or Rally? That was, Rally yeah, Road that thing? was uh, that was like a double entendre a little bit. It was Rally Road. We always we we thought like if this worked, we were getting a bunch of copycats really early, and we were like, you got to protect yeah. it because you can't like patent the stuff. You know what I mean? I think Shark Tank culture has changed people's brains a little bit where they think like. Everything Shark Tank. It's not really like that. You always like if someone's gonna steal your idea, they're stealing it. it doesn't matter how many patents you have. Like I promise, it's gonna show up overseas somewhere. But early on, we were like, all right, make people think it's just gonna be cars. When we got that first car, we were already talking about trying to acquire. We were talking to Ken Golden at Golden Auctions about acquiring a '52 Mantle rookie card and a Honus Wagner card because we knew we wanted to launch with those two. And those conversations started in 2016 and then became assets in 2018. 
But the other side of it is that we looked at it like we were trying to create this persona of what like a real investor, a, stand, a, a typical investor on rally would look like. And to us, it wasn't Wall Street. It was like this road somewhere in the Midwest. And it's like you and a bunch of friends rally together to do something awesome and like and like syndicate invest in something great that you guys all believe in. So that for us was like, you know, I live super close to Wall Street now. I'm like in the shadow of the World Trade Center. I'm looking down a street right now, basically at Wall Street. But it was like, it's not this place where there's these huge buildings and you're stuck in between them running around this rat race. It's a place where you can really think about where you're putting your money. And you and a bunch of people can rally together to do it. That to us was like, it's the very romanticized version of it, but that was Rally Road to us. Early on in your career, what was your motivation? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, you know what, man? It's like, I talked about this a couple of days ago with somebody. This is a, it's a, actually a regret. And my dad brings this up to me every now and then, like to stop and, and like pat yourself on the back a little bit sometimes. And I, I don't do it because the motivation was always next. I, I've had this, I personally have a really serious problem with loving to get things. But once I have them, I don't necessarily want them as much. I want to go to the next, go to the next, go to the next. And I realized now, like early on, what was the motivation was getting to the next thing. But that's what like, anytime I talk to founders now and like, I'll write small angel checks and like advise companies and people. And a lot of times, like I'm just trying to keep young, smart people around me. It's not even like a formal relationship. It's just like lean on me if I could help. Telling those people to, to really, really care about like your first hundred users, the first time that you make like that, like a thousand dollars is transacted in your product, whatever it is. The first time you get like, you know, 10,000 people opening an email. We had all these metrics in mind and that was always the motivation was to get to them. But we like blew through them and I, I didn't stop in any way, shape or form to stop and, and, and think about what we did and, and pat people on the back who were doing it well early on. I should have done more of that because I look back now and it's like those, those motivators in the beginning are the most important part. It never, ever, ever gets better than that. Like having run this business now for six years and gone through a bunch of stuff along the way and ups and downs and whatever, it never gets better than that. And every, that, sh- that's the mo- that should be the motivator for anybody. Is like you're making a bunch of people happy, doing something brand new. If you can make somebody doing it, that's great. But that early part, like that's the real motivator is trying to chase. I'm trying to chase that feeling still. I'm not going to get it back now because I didn't stop to think about it when it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess looking forward, um, what do you kind of like envision kind of this whole rally, like rally, but also like your life to look like in terms of where you want it to go? Um, what do you have in mind in general? I think that I think in, in all of these businesses that are based in consumer, a lot's changed over the last, you know, over the last 12, 18 months, but the last like six months in particular. Because every sort of VC, every investor, every consumer expects a, a very tailored kind of experience that's going to make money. I think that's the biggest thing is like the what was once when we started this especially cast like this really broad net and try and get as many people as possible to do something. I think now it's about like these real, a little bit more discreet in terms of communities. And I think that kind of doubling down on the communities that that and the audiences that care about you most, there's ways to make real significant money and big outcomes doing that now. I think everybody's realized that we have at Rally as well, that a thousand people who genuinely care about something, even if it's a niche like Pokemon as an example, there's a lot of people like in my life who have no idea what Pokemon is and never will. That community is super strong. They're willing to spend and they're willing to spend a premium if you give them a product that matters that they can't get anywhere else that they care about. Focusing more on those niche, what would be would have been considered niche groups, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, and finding ways to like monetize those audiences in a way that incentivizes both sides, but doing it in a smaller group, I think, is a lot of what Rally's looking at now. But what I'm also looking at myself personally is 
is it's great to have like yeah. 10,000 people around you, but there's like three or four people in your life that are always going to be the most important. I gotta, I'm personally trying to focus more on those the same way I'm trying to focus on that with the product. Yeah. It sounds like nostalgia is like a big driving factor of a lot of these things. Like, you know, for taking Pokemon as, as an example, like all the kids that grew up playing that, you know, as adults, it's not like you forget, like that was a big part of your childhood. And so like, now that you have some money in your pocket, maybe you want to like get that card you can never get when you're a kid or something. But when you guys are thinking about what kind of different, you know, assets to have on the platform, um, how, how do you approach that equation or that question? You know, because you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, I think was that initial kind of first, you know, hit on the market tends to obviously be a little bit like the iPhone thing, right? Um, it's like, oh, wow, who would have thought this would be something that people would be interested in? Yeah. And then boom, like someone's willing to spend a lot of money on it. But then as more and more people like, oh, I have an iPhone at home that I can put up and oh, I have an iPhone. And at some point it becomes, I don't know what the word is, like commoditized or not commoditized, but like it's just like standardized, right? Like it's there isn't like these like big swings anymore because I feel like, you know, it's on like every platform all of a sudden and everyone's kind of investing it here and there. How do you kind of go for those like early wins in terms of, something really new and exciting that maybe people haven't seen before. Like, yeah, dude, approach. I know you hit it on the head. It does get commoditized. I'm trying to, I'm trying to yeah. in life just avoid like, you know, Howard Lindzen has said this before, who's an investor and he's a friend, he's a mentor, but it's like every party ends the same type of thing. Like once it gets yeah, to that yeah. point, it get it does get a little bit scary and you start like thinking in my head, am I emotional? Like, can I be emotionally attached to this without having to make money on it? And that's a little yeah. bit, that's like how I've thought about a lot of collecting in general is that's the art mantra is buy what you love. If you make money on it, it's great. Here, we're running a yeah. platform where returns are a part of it. So we're trying to, for me personally and for the platform, I'm trying to not be completely emotionally compromised when we find assets to put on Rally. And I think that there's a lot of times where that happens quickly. And that's the bad part about nostalgia is that it, it can be toxic. You start remembering something that like, it didn't even happen that way. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to think about like what the next collectible is. I'm like, oh, that... Tamagotchis were huge when I was when I was a kid. It's like, were they really though? Did I even have one? Did I care about that? Like, I'm not sure. So I think part of yeah. what we try and do when we find assets is ensure that a it's rooted, you know, in data and in finance. It's something where our underwriting standards have to be there no matter what. We can't just be like, oh, I like that thing, I remember it. I'm gonna buy that and I'm gonna I'm gonna push that on our investors type of thing because that's just not the way things work. So we have those checks and yeah. balances in place, and then we want to sprinkle in moments. Where we're like, all right, this is relevant because of, and the iPhones, like, not to keep bringing it up, that's the perfect example of it. Like, this is important because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. Part of it is that it's still like, it's still the same root technology, looks and feels the same now as it did in 2007 when it came out. It's changed the way that these other products are designed that have nothing to do with communication or phones, but they have to look and feel that same way. It's it's literally changed like the manufacturing process for 20, 30 different products. It's something that goes with the legacy of Steve Jobs, which at this point is already written. It's not going to change in the future. All those things to me are like this moment where I could tap into, I could tap into that and say like, yeah, I have this emotional connection to it. But from a returns perspective, from like a vintage technology perspective, from a collectability perspective, from a financial perspective, from a relevance perspective, it checks all those boxes too. Those are the things that we want to focus on as opposed to just things that have nostalgia or that have emotion, you know? One thing I think about, Rob, um, so I work in commercial real estate, and when we're not doing this podcast, that's what I do. And the way we define, uh, and we have these different buckets, whether it's a stabilized core asset, value add, or an opportunistic one that we're developing, there's these different buckets of capital and investors, and they all want a different return, and they're investing for different reasons. And there's obviously different ways of making money in each one. Some cash flow, others don't for a while, then they cash flow. 
and I'm just I'm just thinking about these collectibles. And they're not items that necessarily cash flow. Sneakers are not cash flowing. A piece of art is not cash flowing. I'm sure there's ways of, again, I'm going to use the word cash flowing, give it to a museum. I'm sure there's other methods. Have you guys thought about at Rally how to get to that level of uh, classification where there are different types of investors that want an investment in an asset because they think investing in it will increase the value? So let's say me and Pat, you know, we're two people that have a lot of clout which we are, and we own that asset. We know the value is going to go up and we sell it to the next person. I'm, you know, I'm just curious about the whole inst- the institutionalization of these alternative asset classes. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's coming. And for us in particular, we've been paying attention to the space for a minute. We think about it the same way I think you're saying it. We have assets that from, from, the, from a retail investor perspective, A, I'll say this, from an institutional component, like we're always working on that. And the idea that there's a more passive product or one that's, that's aimed for a different investor is being worked on right now. From the cash flow perspective, it's also one of those things where for us, there's, there's assets that are, we will look at as like blue chip. And they're the ones that, you know, maybe historically, you know, they'll make eight, 9% a year. That's something like Birkin bags and a few others that they don't spike super crazy, but they've always sort of, if you just do the research, 35, 40 years of history that they've done well. Those are ones that are like very much stagnant assets. They don't produce, they don't spin off cash flow, but they're they're tried and true as like scarcity value and the value that people put into collectibles and into like the heirloom pieces. Then there's the crazy risky ones. And some of those do have cash flow attached to them. And that's like board ape NFCs. Like we gave out dividends when ApeCoin got distributed as an airdrop to every owner. And we had, you know, five, six hundred thousand dollars worth of coins that became the first dividend that got paid out on Rally. And that's like we're always trying to think about ways that we can produce cash from those. Then the last piece of it is that, you know, real estate, things like domain names that have leasing rights, all these things where you can be a little more of a I don't want to say a passive investment because that's the wrong way to say it. But one that does generate cash that if you wanted to just be in assets that are cash flow producing on Rally. We're starting to create more opportunities that you can do that, and we'll continue to create opportunities for that in the future too. And I'm thinking to like a different level where you can collateralize these assets as fractional owners in these assets and buy into using that leverage for other sorts of assets to do that do cash flow. Essentially, for example, leveraging your Nike sneakers, whatever model they are, into assets that are cash flowing by buying or lending into another asset type that is cash flowing. And I and I think. That's where I see the I can't even say the world problem institutional <laughs> institutionalizing of those assets, but I feel like it's still so early on in this business that people haven't even really understood the levels it could reach. I mean, do you feel that way? No, I would agree. I think that the the way we've looked at this business is that we wanted it to live. You know, there's there's Robinhood and Fidelity and all the all the trading apps and like the big brokerages. There's, there's Coinbase and then the bigger exchange and institutional exchanges that exist for crypto. None of it exists right now for alts. And I think that that for us has always been like the big opportunity is that we're building a space while we're building the product. So all of it is on the table for us right now. I think that when we think about leverage and some of the stuff that I, that I think has gotten a bad rap over the last 18, 24 months for sure, it's one that we, we don't tread lightly into. So it's from a responsibility standpoint, it's making sure if we're going to do like lending or, or leverage that it's not... It's not going to be like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of 21-year-olds who blow through their entire savings because they're, they're 10x levered on Robinhood buying GameStop. You know, I mean, I don't want to ever be putting investors in that situation. But tools for sophistic- for what the government and what like Wall Street would consider sophisticated investors 
all those tools are something that we look at. If it exists in the equity markets, I think it should exist on rally in some capacity and it will at some point. Have you seen like any changes over the last year? I mean, obviously, no surprise, there's been a huge decline in the capital markets. Values have decreased. Have you seen that same level of decline uh, over the last, you know, whatever, call it six to 12 months in these alternative alternative assets? Yeah, I mean, when when, th- when everything gets hit, everything gets hit. If gold is up and everything else is down, you can probably bet that a lot of these assets have taken a little bit of a hit too. We still, like, even with, with everything we've done to this point, with liquidity down a little bit, with the markets down, NFTs on rally, some of them are down 80% from their highs, and that just tracks the market. Some of those mar- those NFTs are down 80% on OpenSea as well. Then we have others where there's like pockets of, of really fantastic assets, and we, we believe in everything that goes on rally. But ones like a Honus Wagner card, which over time, since 1909, has never, a single card has never been sold for less than it was purchased for. And that's happened you know, with the 120-year history. What we've seen happen is that investors are kind of graduating a little bit. And I think during the pandemic, where it was all momentum trades, it was like throw more money at stuff. We were blowing through IPOs. A lot of that stuff was part of like, you know, an upward trend. And we're on the hook for a lot of that stuff too. But it's something that's going to retreat. But I think we try and find the best of the best to make sure that it's that Honus Wagner type of thing where like over time, we believe in every one of these assets. We've seen a lot of our investors mature to the point that, you know, they're not churning off platform. They might consolidate a little bit and find the five or six assets they really believe in where they're okay leaving that money there for a year or two years. But that's been the biggest change. And it's not really for us because we've always tried to find great assets. We've always tried to find those museum quality pieces. But we've had a lot of investors who are passion led who came here because they recognized, you know, Michael Jordan or a specific asset on the platform. They wrote it up during that crazy wave during COVID. Now they might be flat or down but they believe in those assets and they've done more research and they've kind of consolidated into three or four. They really believe in with the same amount of money. And now they're thinking about it as, as like mature investors. I think that that's what this whole run did for the last two and a half years. What took me, you know, I lost all my money in 2009, but it was like, that was my education. I had seen that bear market and in the earliest parts of my career where I had just made a couple bucks and that was all gone. These kids, and I don't want to say these kids and age myself all the way, but they've never seen a bear market. They don't know like what rug pulls really feel like. And everybody got that education super quickly during this, this one, year, one and a half year window. But I think that the benefit of that is that they're able to learn to educate themselves and get back in the game a lot quicker now too. As for me, it took like six, seven years to get the confidence back to get, to get back in and start investing again. You know, They don't have that. Well, Rob, this has been um, such a fun and interesting and engaging conversation. Um, you know, Can't thank you enough for, for being here and sharing your story and everything you've sort of learned along the way. And Glad we finally had a chance to meet and make this happen and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch and excited to see what comes next for you guys. Nah, likewise, man. Really appreciate it.